Hi, everybody. Just a heads up. Today's episode deals with some topics that can be tough, um, infertility and miscarriage. So please know that before you listen, make sure you take care of yourself and uh, understand that there are topics that you might not be ready for. Hello to all my cool curlers. It's Beautiful Anonymous. One hour, one phone call, no names, no holds barred. I'd rather go one-on-one. I think it'll be more fun. And I'll get to know you and you'll get to know me. Hi everybody, Chris Gathered here. Keep this intro short. As I mentioned on Tuesday's call... Y'all heard it. It was about being a surrogate. If you haven't listened to it, you're going to want to listen to it. Uh, This one will make a lot more sense if you do. We heard about a whole world and how it works and how one gets involved. All these things that we mentioned on, on Tuesday, right? Now, keep in mind, we're also dealing with the world of pregnancy, which also means, very sadly, that you are dealing with a world where sometimes miscarriages happen. I don't want to spoil things too heavily, but here's something I know. It's a thing that happens a lot. It's a thing that's ultra painful. It's a thing that people don't talk about. It's a thing that happens to way more people than anyone realizes. Uh, And it is a thing that happened with our caller, obviously, if I'm bringing that up. I feel like I have to bring that up in the intro because there's many people who well within their rights are going to go, I'm not ready to hear about that. I get it. This one's not for you. Uh, For the rest of us, It felt like we needed to put this follow-up out right away because it's one story and it's unfolding quickly. They are extensions of each other. So it felt like we've got the whole story and and we should put it out. It's the right thing to do in many ways, even though it's such a painful call. So the caller is so incredibly open and honest about it. I applaud her for it. And I have a feeling there might be some people who take real uh, comfort in this if they've been through it. So if that's the case, I hope it helps. And for anybody blessed to have not gone through that, I think it will be another look into this into this world. Thank you for calling Beautiful Anonymous. A beeping noise will indicate when you are on the show with the host. Hello. Hi, Chris. Hello. How are you? I'm pretty good. Um... The snow is starting to melt in New Jersey. That's a good thing. <laughs> I'm, en- I'm enjoying being back here after spending a bunch of time working out of my uh, parents' garage in their 55-plus retirement community this winter. <laughs> I'm going to ask you how you are, but before I even do that, I want to be clear is that this is a follow-up call, and, and people have heard us do follow-up calls in the past, but I want to be full disclosure that uh, you and I are speaking again before your episode's even been released um, because you already have some updates. And I know that those are really tied into me asking you how you're doing. So um, I just wanted to let everybody know that this is the follow-up that we're, the follow-up that we're doing is, is not, you know, it's, we're not waiting a year like we usually do. So with that being said, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing okay. Thank you for asking. Um, I'm feeling hopeful at this point. Um, do you want me to kind of get into it? Yeah, I think so. If you, I mean, if you're okay with it. Yeah, and I know it's going to be heavy 
So if we want to take a break, we can talk about dogs again. I know mm. you're really into that. Yeah, um, we could yeah. talk about curling or we could talk yeah. about teaching during a pandemic. I have other things too, if it feels too heavy, but so, and I know, you know, um, a little bit about what happened already because, um, I reached out to Anita shortly after I talked to you because, um, when I talked to you, I was, I was like 10 and a half weeks pregnant. And then the next week, um, they were, I, I had done some blood work and they were kind of confused about what was going on with my blood work. So they wanted me to do an ultrasound and I felt totally fine going into the ultrasound. And I, I want to be very clear about the context of how I felt going into that ultrasound, because I think that makes a difference for how I handled it after. Like I was 11 and a half weeks pregnant and I felt so excited. And you could probably hear the excitement in my voice when I was, when I talked to you. Um, and I, and I felt like nothing was possibly wrong. And, um, I, I still had pregnancy symptoms. Uh, like I have an aversion to dairy when I'm pregnant for some reason. And that was still happening. So like, and I wasn't bleeding. Like there was nothing in my mind that made me feel like something was going wrong. Even, even when they said that they wanted to take a peek because of my blood work, like if there wasn't that thought never crossed my mind. Um, so I went into the ultrasound and they started by doing um, an ultrasound on my belly, which for anybody who's been through pregnancy knows there's two different kinds of ultrasounds. They can do one on your belly or they can do one vaginally. And they usually do them vaginally until the baby is big enough to be seen through your belly ultrasound. So um, I went in expecting to take my pants off because that's what I had been doing for um, several weeks before that. Um, well, for the past year, actually, because they keep looking at my uterus and everything like that. Um, and so then she started to put the jelly on my belly and I was like so excited because I was like, oh, it's time to see the baby like the normal way. And um, as soon as she put the, the um, I don't know what you call it, the wand down, um, she said, actually, we're going to do the other kind. And I had already started the FaceTime call with one of the dads and he was waiting for the other dad to come in. So I had to hang up with him really quick to go get prepared for the other kind of ultrasound. And so I changed and then the other dad um, connected on the phone. So then the both dads were on FaceTime with me and I had to call them and say, and, and so as I was coming out of the room after I had changed, I asked the ultrasound tech, I was like, is the baby smaller than you expected? And she just really quietly said, yeah. So then I didn't really ask any more questions, but then I told the guys what she said. I said, the baby's smaller than she expected it to be. So then she started the ultrasound and they don't usually, at least at my clinic, the ultrasound tech doesn't usually say very much. So she wasn't saying anything. And I was, I had this, like the phone facing the screen so that the guys could see. But of course, we don't know what, what we're seeing. So I just asked her, like, is the size okay? And she answered, the baby is measuring at eight weeks. And I said, can you find a heartbeat? And she said, no. So, um, at that time, like one of the dads, um, like he just dropped his head and I know he started crying and, um, it was, it was, uh, I swear I wasn't going to call cry during this. Um, but it was really, really hard. Um, because obviously when you go through it and it's your own, it's hard, but going through it and watching someone else go through it that way. I mean, it was their baby. It's not my baby. So that was, that was really hard too. And, um, the guys kind of said, 
okay, what's next? And they were just kind of hesitant. And then um, she said, well, I'll get you with a provider right away. And that wasn't originally the plan to meet with a doctor. But so she said, we'll get, we'll get with a, a doctor right away after this. And so they kind of said, all right, we're going to, we're going to go because they, I know they had to like process it. So then they hung up and then I was just sitting there and she had to keep taking measurements. And I think when people think about miscarriage, they don't think about all these little things that go along with it. Like sitting there, knowing that the baby inside of you isn't alive anymore. And she just keeps clicking away. And, and it's nothing, you know, I'm not being mean toward her. She was doing her job. But just that moment of like being so alone and just trying to process what just happened when, as I just explained to you, like I was beyond excited for this ultrasound. I was like, yay, we get to see the baby. And so then you just sit in this room and you just wait while she's clicking around and measuring things. And so, yeah, <laughs> that, that's what happened shortly after I talked to you. Well, first thing I'm going to say is I'm so sorry you had to go through that. I know that that's, uh, it's really brutal. It's really brutal. Mm-hmm. And I also know the, you know, the older I've gotten, you know, the more friends I've had who have had babies, having my first child myself. Now, I, 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 I have to say, I really applaud you for walking us through it that specifically right at the top of the call, because I do feel like miscarriage is, is still one of the things that we kind of talk about behind closed doors Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. people don't, um, the, the sense I get is that they happen much more commonly than any of us realize, but that it still seems like a faux pas to speak to it and for sure for I sure totally understand why i also feel like it's pro- i feel like with so many things that that have maybe like a taboo that it's probably healthier to speak about them so i'm i really uh applaud that you are yeah i i'm open to talking about it and it's one of those things that people aren't asking about you know like so what happened after you found out that you didn't see a heartbeat? You know, people, people don't really think about what that must have been like for me, you know, um, or for the dads, of course. Um, and then, you know, to go on. So then we had to wait for a provider because it wasn't a planned meeting. Um, I wasn't supposed to see a provider until much later. So they kind of had to rush one in, but she was with another patient. So I had to, I was like moved into this room like all by myself. And in in the past, those have been happy rooms for me. Like that's where I heard babies' heartbeats and that's where they measured my belly and made sure things were on on track. So they've always been really happy rooms. But then I was just sitting in this room with the news that I just got, um, like all by myself. And that room, I was like just looking around, like this room is so small and it had never felt that small before. And I was just in there all by myself. And um, I called my husband and he left work to come be with me. And, um, then eventually the provider came in and we FaceTimed with the dads again so that they could ask questions and we could talk about what happened. And then this is the other part that's really, really hard. And I, I don't, when I'm talking about it, I don't mean to to be crass, but it's hard not to. Um, so like something else that people don't think about is 
since the baby had been measuring eight weeks and I was almost 12 weeks along or so I thought, um, we had then, then like the next thing that we had to do in that appointment was figure out how to get the baby out. And it, I, I know that sounds like so crass. And so I don't know, like that's a baby. And to think about, I don't know, I, I'm not, I'm not eloquent in how I want to be saying this, but I just wasn't ready for that conversation too, because I was still process, processing the fact that, that the baby wasn't alive, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And I know that when I was younger, and I, I feel like I've always been very upfront on this show that I just kind of like go through life and I have assumptions and I try to learn and I'm smart about certain things and not others, but I, I can be very ignorant in my own ways. And I remember when I was young hearing about miscarriages and in my mind as a young, dumb guy, and you know, I think it's obviously... I, I also, I, maybe this has changed since I was in school, but as far as like health classes growing up, it's not like guys were actually taught about women's bodies. It was just like, mm -hmm. they basically said, here's what you have to do to not get pregnant. And that was health class. Mm -hmm. I always assumed before I got older, and again, new people who have gone through this, that you'd be pregnant. And then in the very early phases, you get your period again and you go, ah, near miss, that sucks. And it's like, oh no, it's it's an actual thing that's growing. And then it stops growing. And like you said, that that's that's it's now this thing that's in your body that that is it must be so. I don't even know. You you can tell me better. Is it terrifying? Is it heartbreaking? Is it you know? I'm sure it's some combination it kind of, of feels, many things. It kind of feels like another knife just jabbed in there. Like you know, why should I have to? and I don't mean to be victim like, but like, why do I have to deal with this on top of that? You know, like the baby, we just lost this baby. Why do I now have to go through all these other things that I have to go through? Um, and part of it was like a decision too, which I was not prepared to make a decision because there's a couple different ways you can do it. Like you can either take some medication and let it happen naturally, or you can opt for the surgery. And in that moment, like you're not prepared to make that decision, but at the same time, like, when is someone ever going to prepare you for that? Like, Hey, just so you know, if this ever happens, these are going to be your choices. So start thinking that like you never think about those things. And in many ways, and I know it's hard to compare, but I've been thinking about how when someone loses someone close to them unexpectedly, they're in that same situation where, okay, now, now it's time to pick out a casket and pick pictures for the funeral, you know, and they were never prepared for that kind of decision because you just never thought that that was going to happen. And how do you make those decisions when you're already so emotionally charged? And it just feels really unfair that all of this has to happen at one time. So initially when we were having those conversations, I was kind of like, Oh, I'll, I'll, my, my OB was kind of saying, well, I'll, I think the best route is to let it happen naturally because surgery is always a risk. So I was like, okay, I'll do that. And I mean, not like excitedly. I wasn't like, yay, okay. I was just like, all right, if that's with what you suggest, I'll do that. So I picked up the medication and I was going to take the medication um, and let it happen naturally. And she said, it's going to be super painful. And once again, that's just another knife. Like why? I already went through so many painful things. Why does this have to be painful too? And, um, I, I, I realize how much of a victim I sound like right now. And I'm really sorry for that, but, um, it, that's, that's exactly how I felt in that moment. Um, 
And, and then, um, I was talking to, I'm in a surrogate group. And so I had talked to some other surrogates and they said, don't do it that way because sometimes you do it that way. And then not everything comes out and you have to have surgery anyway. And when I say surgery, I mean a DNC. Um, so then they kind of changed my mind and I decided I, I wanted the surgery and, um, but it turned out like they had to schedule the surgery. So it was going to take like four days. And that stressed me out too, because I was like, okay, this, I have this baby in me. I, and, and I don't mean to be crass again, but I felt like at this point I need it out because it's not living anymore. Um, so I, I realized how crass that sounds. Um, but it was just like, it felt more urgent to me than they made it, than they made it seem. Um, and so that was just another, another layer on top of it. That's just like another knife in the stomach. Yep. You can have the surgery, but you're going to have to wait. Yeah. Yeah. I want to just jump in for a second and say, there's been a, a few times where you've said like, I'm so sorry to, you know, if I'm coming off like a, a victim, I feel like I, I believe you said I might have misquoted mm-hmm. you, but something akin to that. And then you mm-hmm. said, like, I know this sounds so crass. I'm sorry about that. But I just really want to let you know that I, I completely understand that, but you do not need to apologize for a thing. And in my opinion, these are kind of the exact, these exact juncture points in this process you're talking about, these exact issues, the sort of, you know, there's, there's, there's a macabre aspect to what you're describing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like those yeah. are the exact things that have made, have made it feel like a taboo to speak to this stuff. So I actually feel like the last thing I want you to do is apologize for being as descriptive as you're being, because it's, I think that the exact thing of I have to apologize for being crass is probably the exact thing that's rooted in some level of emotionally, no one can handle this. I also have to admit, and I hope I'm not sounding like, you know, people go, oh, snowflake. It's like we also live in a patriarchal culture and there's probably some element of men, you know, going, I don't want to hear about this, you know, let alone the fact that I feel like uh, women in this position go, it's really hard for me to talk about this. So those things just create this mix where we apologize and we, and we avoid talking about it at all. But point being, you have nothing to be sorry for. You're not being crass. You're just telling us what happened. And uh, do I, not apologize. I think you're you're exactly right. Like I, my fear as I'm saying these things is like, oh my gosh, somebody's going to be thinking how insensitive and you, you just lost a baby. Like, how can you be thinking about yourself? And um, like, you know, so the, that that's my thought is, and that's why I feel the need to apologize. And like you said, it's a taboo topic. So I'm thinking people may not even know what a vaginal ultrasound is and may not, may be living their lives happily without ever knowing about it. But I, I feel like, I feel the need to like, to say sorry for people that have that don't know about this and maybe didn't want to. So yeah, I, I know I, well, I realized how many times I was saying I'm sorry. Yeah, no, and I get it. And that's the other thing. Don't feel bad about that. Cause I get it. But I will also say this. There's a lot of people out there who have been through this and I'm sure some of them are people who have experienced miscarriages in their, in regards to their own bodies carrying partners of people who watch their partners go through miscarriages and who 
never heard about any of this beforehand. And and like you said, nobody really tells you, hey, so if if X, Y, and Z unfolds, here's the things you have to be prepared for. It, it doesn't happen. So mm-hmm. there's people thinking about having kids who might be going, this is really scary and sobering. I'm sure that some of the hardest, there's probably some people who it's extraordinarily hard to listen to how I would not blame them if they had to just pause it and say, I'll listen to this. Some other time, people who are pregnant right now. Right, um, for sure. But I, I would say that nothing that you're saying is aimed at scaring people or turning people off. And and I have to feel like there's probably a lot of people who feel spoken for right now, who feel spoken to right now. And uh, again, I, I, I am really impressed by your ability to do so. Yeah, it took me a while to get to this place and to be able to talk about it. Um, because as you know, like, as soon as I had that ultrasound, like I had messaged Anita and I said, I don't think it makes sense to air this episode. Like it's now it's not the happy story that I was telling. And my first thought was, I don't want the world to know about this. And then um, I did some reflecting and I've gotten some good news since then that made me feel like, you know what, this, and this is what I told Anita, this is my story. This is what happened. And your story is called Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. This is my story. This is what happened. And this is something that happened to people. And so I realized, like, I, I feel okay talking about it now, especially now that I feel more hopeful. And I I realized that it's still a good story to tell, even if the ending to that part of my story isn't exactly what I wanted, what I, what I was hoping it would be. And let's go ahead and pause right there. I, I, I feel like that is uh, just a testament to this caller. You can hear just in that phrasing and that sentence. This is a hard story to tell, but it, it's worth telling. I'm, I'm, I applaud her for telling it. We'll be right back with more details of that story. Okay, break's over. Thanks to our advertisers. Now let's get back to the phone call. the ending to that part of my story isn't exactly what I wanted, what I, what I was hoping it would be. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, again, demonstrating real strength there. I mean, we would, I'm sure we would have been happy to say, okay, yeah, no, well, that's a lot. We're not going to put that out there and make you relive it again on via audio. Um, but I am intrigued. You said you got some good news since then? Yeah. Um, and before I, before I get into that, I want to back up a little bit because mm-hmm. um, something that I haven't talked about was really how this all unraveled with the dads. Because I was going to ask. The, yeah. The, the relationship, um, it's so different. You know, if you have your own miscarriage, you're there, you're, you're grieving, um, you, you lost your baby, but when it's somebody else's, it's a whole other experience. And I can't say that it's harder because I've, I had a, I had a very early miscarriage with, with my own, but um, so I can compare it to that, but I've never had a late, late miscarriage like this. And um, I can't say that it's harder, but it definitely isn't easier not being your own child. Um, because I, like I said, when, when she told us there was no heartbeat and I saw that dad's face, 
and um, I saw him cry. Like there's, this is the part, this is the part where I was going to cry again before this is, this must be the part that really gets to me the most um, there. I, um, and just, I'm shaking right now too. As I talk about this part, um, there's nothing like what, like watching somebody else lose a baby. Um, so it was really, really hard at first navigating with them because the only thing I felt like I could say at that time was, I'm sorry. And I was saying it like, I'm sorry that this happened to you. And I'm sorry. And and I know this sounds awful, but I'm sorry that I did this. And because at that time, my, my thought was, I did this, you know, this, this, this was my fault. And they told me so many times, so many times, it's not your fault. This is, this is something that happens. Like, so it was nothing from their end. And if I didn't make it clear in the last call, they are the most amazing, compassionate, deserving people in the entire world. So it was nothing from their end, but of course they can't change how I feel and how, what I'm what what I'm going to feel and I think anyone who's had a miscarriage probably in some way wonders what they did to make it happen. So and, and there, so there's that level, but then when it's somebody else's baby, it's like this whole other level. So it was really hard to talk to them at first because I had been talking to them every single day for well, we, I've known them now for over a year, but um, as we were like transferring the embryo and everything, we were talking every day and um, we were like talking about updates and symptoms that I was feeling and all these things. So I was used to talking to them every single day. And then after this happened, it felt like there wasn't much to say, except I'm sorry. And you can only say I'm sorry so many times. Obviously, I like saying I'm sorry. It seems it came across in the call, but um, I can only say that so many times to them. And they can only say back, it's not your fault. And we're sorry this happened too, you know? So it just got to the point where there wasn't much we could say. And that's really hard to go from talking to somebody all the time to not talking to them at all. So I think they were kind of unsure how to proceed with me because I was in a tough place and I was definitely unsure how to proceed with them. So there were just several days there where we weren't weren't talking. And, And it wasn't like bad intentions on either part we were just both grieving and um my one of my very first thoughts as I was sitting in that small room after I found out the news was like oh my gosh this is over I did something and now this will never happen again like I I want to give them a baby so so bad and I was thinking maybe it could never happen then in that room so to go from that part to the optimistic news, like I was just waiting on the edge of my seat. Like, is this over? Is it, is this never going to be a dream that I get to fulfill um, for myself and for them? Um, but finally, after like a week of kind of navigating things, they were talking to the doctor and I was talking through the surrogacy agency and stuff like that. Um, I finally found out that they do want to try again. And um, so after I found that out, that's when I messaged Anita and I said, you know what, I'm ready. I'm ready to talk again because I feel hopeful. And now as of even the last couple of days, we're getting like a calendar ready, which means like I could be transferring an embryo within the month maybe or the next month after that. So we're really close to trying again. And the doctor, um, and again, I'm going to say this is crass, but it is. They, after my DNC, when they, they did the surgery and they took out um, the whatever was left, um, as sad as that sounds, they like studied it to see if there was something 
chemically wrong or if there was something genetically wrong and nothing they everything they studied um, looked perfectly normal so it's just a, a, a true unexplained miscarriage and um, the, the the dads talked to the doctor and said like they checked is everything okay with the uterine lining and is is everything oh is everything with the surrogate um, still still as it should be and and the doctor confirmed that yes um, I'm a perfectly good candidate and this was just an example of a clear unexplained miscarriage and um, the doctor thinks I'm a great candidate to try again so we have that plan moving forward so that was a big part of it for me was finding out that it wasn't over that's that's uh what a hopeful thing yeah I'm I'm excited about that I'm still obviously super sad about what happened and I'll be sad and anyone who's gone through a miscarriage knows like you always know your, what your due date was supposed to be and everything like that. So I'll be sad like at that time nears and in my surrogate group, like we all consider, we called ourselves transfer buddies. If we like transferred the embryo on the same day and I can see like my transfer buddies, like moving forward in their, like in their pregnancy and they announced to their families and everything because they hit that mark. And so I'll always be, like really sad about what happened, but um, I'm excited that the dads want to try again with me and that, um, and that we still could fulfill this, this dream. I have to imagine that's a huge relief because there must be this fear because there is this, this other quality that, you know, we spoke about so much the first time that we're really living in something that would have felt like a, a, I think when when I was a kid, we're we're living in a reality that would have felt like some science fiction elements that we can even use these mm-hmm. technologies to do these things, and it is transactional at its core. And there must have been a part of you that felt like, well, they would be within their rights to go, "Hey, we're going to try again with somebody else." Which I would 100%, imagine, yes. And I would have mm-hmm. to imagine psychologically that's so scary because it, it must make it feel like. Was I like, was I just a cog in a machine or are they like, mm-hmm. are they saying, no, we're going to pull it, you know, not on my end, not to be crass. And I'm really not trying to make a joke here, but it, it, right. it no, no, no. It must feel like it could have boiled it down to this thing of like, Hey, so the Wendy's drive through didn't work out. We're going to go pull into Taco Bell. Just like a really cold right. transactional view of it. And I'm, I'm glad that didn't happen. Well, and, and to continue along with that analogy, it's like, if you, but if only one of them is going to serve food, you're going to go to the one that's serving food, right? So like, because if I, if I was not a good candidate, I would, I would in their case for sure pick another surrogate because they want their best chance of getting a baby. So that, that was my thought in my mind. And I actually verbalized that to them. I said, if you, if you, if you think, I don't remember how I said it, but basically if you need to move on, I will understand. And I never told them like how bad I really wanted them to stay with me because I didn't want that to influence like them choosing uh, a not as qualified candidate just because they felt they owed it to me or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm now 35 years old and maybe they could pick a younger surrogate because technically I'm considered advanced maternal age. So maybe they would have picked someone younger or maybe they would have picked an experienced surrogate. So someone who had already delivered a, uh, a baby through IVF, you know, um, I, I can't, nobody could blame them for that. 
Um, but there was still like this part of me that was like, oh gosh, I just, I just hope so bad they want to try again with me. Um, and, and so that was part of the loss for me because I didn't lose a baby, but I lost this opportunity to, to give them that. And so that's kind of what I was grieving more than anything. Um, and now I'm feeling very positive that we, that we can try again because as, as it is, like I did already, um, have a successful first transfer. So a lot of surrogates, when they transfer the embryo the first time, it's called a failed transfer. It doesn't take. And mine took right away. So the doctor feels like, um, well, actually, and you talk about the science behind all of this. There, the, doc, the doctor at my fertility clinic is trying to analyze right now why there have been more miscarriages than there were previously, like because they figured out so much science behind it. And now they're seeing more miscarriages than they were. They keep very specific data on all of this. And they're wondering if maybe people's immune systems are changing because of what's been going on in the last year. So they're going to do some more blood work with me and try to, and, and these are all things that they can control. Um, but yeah, that's really, that's a really interesting part of it too. I'm, I'm now kind of a case study for what might be happening in the world of IVF. That's wild. That's a wild thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in a classroom all day with kids that pick their boogers and then eat their boogers and then wipe them on other people. So there are a lot of germs in my environment and <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's my world. And, um, but now the kids are wearing masks, so they're not able, I mean, some of them, eat, this is gross, but they do pick, they put their finger underneath their mask to pick their nose. Cause you know, they got to get it out. But for the most part, there aren't near as many germs in my classroom setting. I haven't gotten my typical colds that I get every single year because we're, we're, we're protecting our health against those other kinds of sicknesses more than we ever were before. And if a kid has a cough, they're not supposed to be coming to school. So it's not the germy environment that we were all living in before. Um, there's a, obviously a still a big germ that's, that's coming, that's around, but um, we're living our lives in very different ways than we have in the past. So that's what the, my doctor is trying to study right now is is that having some kind of effect on, um, on IVF and um, inserting a, an embryo into, into a uterus that it, it doesn't really belong to. So, yeah. Right. Right. Almost like if our bodies aren't being sort of challenged and having to fight things off, does that almost right. mean that the muscles are atrophying in your system is just more like less trained to handle adversity, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what it sounds like. And I'm not a doctor and I'm hearing this from the dads who heard it from the doctor. Um, so this, this is like a third, third source or something, but um, that's, that's basically what they're explaining to me. Um, and so it sounds like they, they took more blood work for me and they're going to try to see what my immune system is like and um, a couple of different, I don't know, levels in my immune system. <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, so I don't understand, but the doctor sounded positive. Like, Hey, if it's this, well, we can easily fix it with this. So um, I feel, I feel hopeful and the doctor feels hopeful and the dads feel hopeful. And um, just another good positive thing in our situation. 
um, they have embryos left over. So it wasn't like this was their last embryo and they would have to go through that whole thing of finding a new egg donor and making new embryos. They they have um, plenty of embryos um, that are, that are still there. So yeah, they, and the dad, one of the dads even used the word crass, which comes up a lot, but he's like, not to be crass, but we have embryos left over. And so it's a hard thing to say because you don't want to say, well, that didn't matter because it did matter to all of us. Um, but the positive news is that we have more still. Yeah, that's great. It's great. You you know, you're talking about the immune systems and mm-hmm. I have... I have noticed, you know, my son is 22 months old now. And in his, in his first year of life, you know, we had to use that gross, what do they call it? The thing that you put in his nose and you suck out the boogers when he gets a cold. Yeah, I don't thing. know. Like the ball, the ball thing uh, or the, or the one where you actually suck. I've used both. I've used both. Oh, what yeah. is that called? Oh my God. It has such a funny name. It's called like the boogie. I know, or I know something. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and like he would get colds now and then, and th- he has not had a he has not had a cold in a year at this point. And I sit there and I go, "Oh, that's cool. We didn't have to deal with that." But then you do also go, "Well, a kid who's 22 months old, he should have had he should have been dealing with more stuff. Like we should have been more scared about more stuff that's coming." And while that is pleasant to not have to deal with it now, is this, is that like, I wonder if there's studies being done of like, well, what happens to all these kids who didn't get the same immunities in their first couple of years of life? Cause we all had masks on and right. every time someone sneezed, we like dove into a bunker, you know? Right. Yeah. It's something I never thought about until the doctor kind of explained what's happening in the, in the IVF world. But yeah, my kids haven't gotten um, sick in the, in the last year either. It's just, it's just a different world now. And at school, I've, um, a lot of times we do notice the kids that came from like an in-home setting and weren't exposed to as many germs compared to the kids who were in daycare, you know, and exposed to a lot of germs early, early on. The kids that were exposed to a lot of germs do seem to get sick less later on. So there Mm -hmm. could be something coming for, for all of our kids that have been in this really closed off environment. Oh boy. I'll brace myself. Yeah, I know more fun stuff related to related to this pandemic. Oh yeah. The back, the, the backlash, like the tight, the tidal wave right. of unaccounted for germs that have just been floating around waiting for us for the past year. Who, Oh boy. Now I have a question to ask. Tough question to ask. You want to talk about a crass question. Here it is. I told you not to apologize for anything. I'm apologizing ahead of time for this because this one's truly crass, but I have to ask because it's a huge curiosity on my end and therefore I assume anyone listening. The fact that this was a contract with this couple, are are there like financial implications to this? Like... I know in entertainment, sometimes you'll sign a deal and it'll be, I think even with Beautiful Anonymous, my deal is like, okay, you get a certain amount up front. And then when you deliver a certain number of episodes, you get this percentage of the money promised to you. And then at the completion of your contract, you get this much. And I feel like a lot of contracts are built this way. And ultimately you do, you are in a contractual situation. So I am curious about that. 
tough question. I know I had to ask it. I was curious. I feel like there's probably so many other people wondering. So we'll get those answers when we come back. All right, everybody, no more breaks. That is that. Let's finish the phone call. You are in a contractual situation, so I am curious about that. Yeah. Um, so they break. So you get like a, as a surrogate, you get a base pay and they break the base pay into nine months. So since I was pregnant for two months, it, it, it started within two months. Um, like it wasn't a complete two months, but does that make sense? There were, it spanned over two months. So I got two months of that base pay. So that base pay divided by nine. I get, um, I got two of those. Um, and then there are, there's, there are lots of things in the contract that um, you get compensated for. Like early on, I had to have a biopsy, which I don't remember if I mentioned in the call, but they were looking to see like my, like my uterine lining to see if it was um, basically when would be the perfect time to do a transfer. And so I did like, I get, I got compensated for that because it was considered an invasive procedure. And then same with this DNC, because it was an invasive procedure. Um, I did receive compensation for that too, um, which we didn't even know about or ask about until way after um, we just got the payment. And my husband looked at it and he's like, what's this? So that was something that never crossed our minds. Um, but I feel like it's another one of those knives sticking in, sticking it into the dads this time. Like, not only did you lose your, this baby, but you're going to have to pay for it. And you're going to have to pay for the months of pregnancy that, that didn't even amount to a baby for you. So yes, there, there are tons of things in the contract that go along with that. Um, there's things in the contract too, that say like at this point, if I wanted to, I could stop. Um, I could, I could leave the, um, I could leave the match. Um, and I don't need to, I wouldn't need to give a reason. Um, my contract says that I will try up to three times if I want to. Um, and same on their end, if they decided to end the match, they could end the match without any, um, contractual, I don't know, breaking the contract, whatever that would be because of, um, because of where we ended up, but both of us decided to continue to move forward. So that's, that's not an issue. Yeah. This contract is like, I don't know, dozens of pages and there are so many interesting things in there that you would never think about, such as like, uh, marital relationships, relations with my husband, things like that, that you wouldn't even consider, um, otherwise, but then to have it in a contract and to sign something like that. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot in there. (laughs) That's, it must feel so weird to get that, to cash that check. That must feel so weird. Well, and it, it, yeah, it doesn't feel, it's not, yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel like, yay, we got more money. Like, my husband said it and I, and I like shrugged because it didn't, it just felt more hurtful to me more than anything. And, um, it makes sense because what I went through was hard and I missed work and, um, it it was all, that was all on my end that part of the pain of it, all the physical pain was on my end. Um, so the compensation makes sense, but it didn't feel good in any way. And it's just not deposited automatically. So we didn't actually have to go sign for it or anything like that. But yeah, it did not feel 
it didn't feel happy in any way to get that money. Right, right, right. But I feel like we talked about it in the first call too of, you know, you described such a, a warm and and healthy relationship that you developed and, and so much excitement for the people you're doing this for. But ultimately, like, you are putting your body through the ringer and this is another mm-hmm. extension of that that's an, un- an unexpected left turn that's like an even worse way to put your body through the ringer and then all the emotional and it's like yeah if you're going to if you're going to do this i get that you have to you, ha- you have to be ready to account for the fact that if you're if you're paying if you're paying for access to someone's body to to do this that also that takes on many forms and you got to be ready it's it's what a what a like a thing that's like completely understandable when you only think about it intellectually and then when mm-hmm. you're thinking about about it emotionally, you must go. This is this is this is not good for no one. No one feels good. No one feels good. Right. Yeah. And I guess I didn't think of it at the time. I was not thinking about any money at the time. Um, but when I was deciding between which way I wanted to miscarry the baby, if I wanted to do it on my own or through the through a surgery. I didn't consider the fact that they would have to pay for that surgery. So I, but I did talk to them about the decision because I was like, I don't know what's best for me. Um, It sounds like it would be really painful to do this on my own. Um, But surgery has risks and they were just like, whatever you think is best. And I, I do wonder if, if it crossed their mind that they would be paying for it. My guess is no, just because I, they are so genuine that I think they really did want whatever was best for me. But that never crossed my mind at the time when I was debating um, which which would be best. But like I said, if I had done it on my own, it's possible I would have needed a surgery anyway, which they also would have had to pay for. So yeah, there's we haven't gotten the bill yet for that surgery, but I can't even, I mean, thousands and thousands of dollars. I, I had anesthesia, I was, I was put under, I had a whole team of doctors, like they're, I can't imagine. Here's something that you've, you've, you've delved into probably the hardest question I'm going to ask. You mentioned that you had a miscarriage on your own. That was much earlier in the process. Um, You know, you are, like you said, you said at the top of the call, at the end of the day, this is their baby. In terms of, mourning the actual life that you, you, you know, you were harboring and then that life stopped, stopped, you know, mm-hmm. what do you think your relationship is with mourning it when you already balanced it with the, you know, mentally understanding this, this is their baby. What's your relationship with that process like? I think it's hard to explain to someone who hasn't and not just you, but anybody who hasn't like signed on to be a surrogate because I, I mourn that baby as if it were more like a niece or nephew, um, not, not as if it were mine. So of course, if you lost a niece or a nephew, like your heart breaks, especially because you're watching 
you know, their parents struggle through it. So in, that's, that's how I mourn it. Not as something that belonged to me because it, it never did, but as so, someone that people that I love lost, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does. It does. There are so many ways that I've been thinking about about this and how it really does feel like like a, a funeral in some ways, like you lost someone, but like you said, with it being taboo, it's so much more private. I mean, we don't, we are not going to have any kind of ceremony um, to say goodbye. Like it just, it's something that happened and now it's over and we're trying, I don't know. It it feels so different and and emptier. And there, there were a lot of people that knew that I was pregnant because I'm a very, like, I'm a talkative person and I like to talk about it because I'm excited about it, which I'm sure came across in the last call. Um, so I had told a lot of people and there were a lot of people like telling me that they, they were sorry and, and asking if there's anything they can do. And it, in, in many ways, it felt like I, I lost somebody like you would, you know, if you lost someone in your life, um, but there's nothing anybody can do. And there's, it's just so different in, in losing someone else's baby. I don't, I wish I could, I wish I could put it into words to help people understand because I know it's such a unique experience, but yeah, there's a, there's a, a deep sense of sadness for what we lost. And especially when like together, the dads and I were celebrating it so much and talking about um, what that, that baby would be like and um, how that was the sibling for their, their current baby. And um, yeah, there's, I, I definitely born for that, the loss of the, of that child for sure. I feel like one of the other things about miscarriage that really doesn't get spoken of. And I wonder if you've had any thoughts on is, you know, one of the, one of the pro- probably the most defining political debate in some ways, I think there's like a handful of them is pro-life, pro-choice. Mm-hmm. And I feel like miscarriage is something that is something that makes you really, really believe that life starts in this pro, you know, at the beginning of this process, and I feel like it—it it is something that probably affects people's views on that discussion so much. And I sit here and go, to me, it makes. There's probably people who go through this who go, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I have to be pro-life now because I I experienced that, and maybe I wasn't before, and then. To me, I, I think about it, I go, well, to me, it only underlines how incredibly hard making this choice um, must be for some people. Um, not that they are the same thing by any means, but they they live in the same realm. And uh, I wonder if you th- thought about that at all, because it is, it is this it is this aspect of it that I wonder if it's one of the reasons that it's a taboo thing to talk about. I I guess I didn't think too much um, politically about that. Um, 
myself, I'm pro-choice um, because I don't I don't know everybody else's experiences and what may lead them to make that decision. I know that for myself, I I would never have an abortion because I I I saw that baby on the ultrasound at six weeks, and then I saw the baby at an ultrasound at eight weeks, and um, well, that was the other thing too, is that we had an ultrasound shortly before the baby must have passed away. But, um, so that's why, another reason why I felt like things were going well, but the development between those, that six week ultrasound and the eight weeks ultrasound, it is astounding. Like what, like to see how much growth occurred and even the size of the baby and how much it had grown. I mean, so I, I, I could never, but I also feel like maybe it's because I'm in a position of privilege where I know if I were to keep the baby, I would have people and a lifestyle around me that would make it, make me able to keep that baby. Because I, I think about those, those people who are in a, they say, well, just, just give the baby up for adoption. Well, it's not, it's not easy to give away your baby. Um, and it's coming from someone who's, who's a surrogate, you know, that would be giving a baby away, not my own. But so I, I, I totally identify with the people who, would need to make that, but yeah, seeing, seeing the development so early on, it definitely makes, makes a case for that. That was a baby. That was a, a child for sure. I remember exactly what you're talking about. I remember going to those ultrasounds and you're in that room. And the first thing that you're thinking is please let everything be okay. Please let everything be okay. Please let everything. And then mm-hmm. they tell you, okay, everything's okay. And then you get to take a deep breath and go, Oh wait, those little flippers don't look like flippers. Those look like hands. Those look like arms. Now right. they're not little flippers right. anymore. And it's this like crazy thing where you're like, it's not a tadpole anymore. That's an eye. Yeah, and I think I see an eye. I think it even had like, I think it has like a tail at first too. Even yeah, like yeah. throughout the process of growing, and then it loses its tail. And it, yeah, um, yeah, it's it's crazy how, how much development happens. And yeah, that's a, that's a child. And, and that was, that was somebody's baby that, you know, so yeah, I definitely, I wasn't having that thought then. Um, but I, I was thinking the whole time, especially that long weekend where I was waiting for the surgery that whole time I was thinking, this is still in me. Like what? And, and, they they had so many so many hard conversations with me about like what it was like to during the surgery to 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 remove it. I guess it was really easy because the baby had passed away so many weeks earlier, and um, it's just yeah, that that's a that's a baby. That's all. I, that's all I kept thinking. All right. Well, you you gave me the option up top. When you said it, when it gets too heavy, we got some. Uh, so how I don't how's curling going? <laughs> curling is great as always. Have you ever seen a curling game? Uh, not live. I've seen it on TV. You do 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 you ever pick up on like their demeanor as they curl? Uh, no, I can't say that I have. So next time, watch for it because it's something so unique to curling. People like when you're curling it's like rude to kind of celebrate. So curlers are just very like laid back people. They'll have the best shot in the world and they'll just kind of shrug their shoulders. And it's, it's just the, the coolest, the coolest experience. You can yell at your own teammates, but you would never like yell at another teammate. It's just 
curlers are very unique people. So the next time you watch, you got to watch for, for what they're like on the ice. <laughs> so when curlers do well, their, their, their instinct is to be like, I'm not going to rub this in. Well played. Yeah, I'm generally. Yeah. So if you Google like awesome curling shots or something and you watch them hit these awesome shots, they don't celebrate the way a football player would after scoring a touchdown. They, even though like likely their, their little move made a bigger difference than one random touchdown. Um, they're just, they're just, they're not, they're very, uh, what's the word for it? Humble. Curlers are very humble. Now, <laughs> if I'm correct me, if I'm wrong, I feel like curling's much bigger in Canada than the, than the States. Yes. Yes, it, it is. So like actually, if our if curlers in the United States want to get good, they a lot of them do go to Canada to play against people that would would give them some competition. And is Canada the country where it's biggest worldwide? I I can't say for sure. I'm a very uh, inexperienced curler. I I just play for the fun of it. I like I'll turn it on when it's on the Olympics and stuff like that, but I don't really watch like top curlers or anything like that. Because I, as you were saying, like curlers are humble. They don't react like football players. In my mind, I'm immediately going, well, because they react like Canadians, not Americans. <laughs> like <that's, laughs> and maybe that's why, maybe that's where the spirit of curling kind of, kind of started. But you start every game with curling by saying good curling. That's kind of your greeting to the other team. And then you end every game by saying good curling or good game. And um, it's just a very social sport. And then after like traditionally after a curling game, you would meet with the other team and you called what it's called broom stacking where you sit with the other team and you usually drink beer or whatever. And, um, you just talk about the game or life or whatever it is. So both teams get together after the game is over and, um, just hang out. Like what other sports are like that where you just go hang out with the other team after the game is over. Yeah. it's. Just, I mean, uh, to be fair, hockey is like brutal and vicious and, people try to, you know, like fist fights are built into the game. And that that's an yeah. institution in Canada as well. So I shouldn't say all of it, but it does feel like this is a, there's a side of politeness that is the cliche yes. for Canadians that it sounds like, okay, <laughs> I just beat the shit out of you at this game. You played terribly. I played amazingly, but let's go sit and talk about if there's any equipment you've bought recently that you feel is uh, really on target. Let's, uh, yeah. Let's grab, grab a drink. Uh, let me know if you have any other hobbies besides curling. And a lot of them are former hockey players because, you know, you can't play hockey well into your 70s, but you can keep curling. So there's a lot of things that they have in common. A lot of them are like into beer and stuff like that. So I don't know if that's Canadian too. But <laughs> <laughs> it's such a cool, it's a cool sport. Like I would recommend to anybody you can't right now because our club is closed to anyone except players, but just to walk into a curling environment, it's just a very unique kind of vibe there. Do you ever feel offended that curling is kind of joked about when the Olympics, there's a handful of Olympic sports that people joke about whenever the Olympics come around. I feel like curling is one of those. I think that people think it looks easy and that's why they joke about it. Like how can this be an Olympic sport? But I'm so you've never tried it, right? No. No. Yeah. Okay. So when you actually do it, it's very, very difficult to get like your accuracy consistent. So I think people look at it thinking it's easy. And I've had people say that to me and then they've, they've tried it and they fall over and they can't, 
they throw it too hard or they throw it too soft and they can't, or they can't push it hard enough. Like that stone you're pushing is 40 pounds. So I think it looks easier and that's why people joke about it. But also the, like the thinking that goes into hitting a perfect shot is, is really, really a, a very intense calculation. And so maybe when you're watching curling and you hear, you're hearing them dissect every single move, like it's a, it's, it's hard (laughs) what they're thinking about and their strategy involved. It's, it's a lot more complicated than people give it credit for. So it doesn't offend me because um, I, I know that people just don't really know. Yeah. I think for a lot of us, we review it we regard it as like sort of like giant bocce ball on ice. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, and like you go to a bar and they have a shuffleboard. And so people are like, well, I can play shuffleboard so then I can curl. Like it's not like that at all because – Shuffleboard, they don't really curl the way a rock curls on the ice. So it's not, it's not the same. You're not, when you're playing shuffleboard, you kind of just want to knock out the other players a lot of times. But when you're curling, there's so much strategy into trying to get your rock to land in just the right spot. And yeah, I highly recommend that anyone who thinks it's ridiculous tries it and then they can say whatever they want about it. Uh, I'm just going to Google where the nearest curling is. Oh, yeah. Okay, there's a curling club. A couple curling clubs not far from me. Okay. Okay. So they're usually like pretty pretty quiet places because people, like I said, it's not like football. Like, hey, watch us. Like, we're the best ever. Like, if you want to come check it out, you're welcome to come check it out. But they're not going to be in your face. And my club, it's hard to kind of get into at this point because every every time the Olympics is on, people, every time curling is in the Olympics, people are like, oh, I want to curl. And so they'll try to get into the club and we kind of max out on members because we can only have so many people playing. So the Olympics is really good to get people attracted to curling. Um, but they don't always stay because it turns out it's not as easy as everybody thinks. I hear you. I mean, there's a there's a curling club about 25 minutes from my new house. Maybe I got to go give it a shot. Well, you'll have to check and see because ours is like a private club. You can't just walk it is. in this there. This is so clearly a you private could club. See, yeah, you could see if they would let you come watch a match or something. Or and you know, you you can use your famous card and maybe they let you like because that would be cool. You, you could, think if I walk in and could, I'm like, guys, I used to be on TV three years ago. You want to yeah. have me here? You think that would work? Yeah. My, um, I would be jumping up and down. <laughs> well, because you like this. If I'm like, hey, I have a podcast where no one knows what my face looks like, and I had a, a TV career that uh, uh, crashed and burned. You want you want me to be I, your celebrity spokesman? Yeah, I I think that we could get a whole group of beautiful anonymous listeners to really um, <laughs> push for that. Because think about you curling. If you consider yourself not very athletic, which is a vibe I've gotten from you. Yes. Like I know you, you do jujitsu, like I, you I'm curling could be, yeah, you curling could be really, really funny. So you think I would be terrible at curling? I think you can if, be honest. At You've first, been so honest no, you this can get, whole you, call. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm not athletic and I'm able to do it, but your first few times trying it, it feels really, really hard. So I think your first few times you would be like, this is really hard. This is not what I expected. And it would be really funny. But then after that, you get the hang of it and you would love it because I think you'd love, you'd love that environment. Curlers are such cool people. Now our time is up. 
And <laughs> I do have to, I'm going to ask one question and then we're going to head out. Be honest. You clearly know Always. enough about me. You were so honest for this whole call. Would me curling for the first time be a significantly bigger disaster than most people curling for the first time? The vibe I got from you is yes, but I think it would be worth it for, for comedy's sake. <sighs> so much of my life is defined by people telling me to do things because <laughs> it would be funny. Now, listen, I we're ending on the funny part clearly, but I do want to loop it back around and say, mm-hmm. you know, you went through something that is is really unimaginable, like uh, uh, one of people's great fears. It's one of the things we don't speak about. You spoke to it and I think it might help a lot of people. And I, th- I thank you for that. And and I am, my heart really is with you that you, you went through that. That's, that's not, not any, it's not something that anybody wants to go through. Thank you. I do appreciate that. I will definitely keep you guys updated as um, things progress and, and hopefully I have good updates for you soon. I wish you nothing but the best. And I wish your, you know, I wish the guys nothing but the best and the baby, nothing but the best. And uh, I hope we do get another update soon. Thank you so much, Chris. Caller, thank you again so much for, for being so open, so honest and talking about something that we all know people don't really talk about. It's, it's really impressive. And, and thank you for the encouragement with curling, even though it sounds like you mostly just want to see a clip of me falling down on my face on the ice. Thank you to Anita Flores. Thank you to Jared O'Connell. Thank you to Shellshag for the music. If you want to know more about me? ChrisGeth.com. So you check that out. And hey, wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple, Sirius, Pandora, there is some version of a button that says subscribe, follow, favorite. When you click that button, it helps the show so much. So please do so. And if you want our whole back catalog without ads, stitcherpremium.com slash stories for more details.